and welcome to the Climate Smart Farming Show podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca L. Fraser, author, multimedia artist, and now podcaster. And I'm so excited to share the Climate Smart Farming Show with you. This comes um, from the work that I did as a journalist covering agriculture and climate change. This podcast is the companion to the book, A Farmer's Guide to Climate Disruption which is now available in audiobook, thanks to the fine folks at Pro Audio Voices. The Climate Smart Farming Show podcast is sponsored by Bee Books, my publisher, and also the publisher of climate smart romance novels from Tara L. Roy. So if you love romance and you love climate change and all the issues that go along with it, check out Tara's books. You can find more information about all of B-Book's offerings at bbooks.org. That's B-E-E books.org. This podcast is also sponsored by my patrons at patreon.com. To join them in supporting this podcast and my other creative endeavors for as little as $1 a month, please visit patreon.com forward slash Rebecca L. Fraser. Now, before we get started, I just wanted to share a little bit with you about um, the inspiration for this podcast, the reason for it. Um, it's it's really quite simple, actually. I am obsessed with food, <laughs> and I really, really am very concerned that people have enough to eat. And one of the ways that that has come out is in my writing. As a journalist covering agriculture, focusing on the science of agriculture, the business of agriculture for two different agricultural trade magazines, I really learned a lot. I was in the position to interview some of the world's top researchers in the field, no pun intended, of agriculture, and, um, and also to interview some truly amazing and inspiring produce growers and farmers of all types, not, not just produce growers, but spending time with these people, seeing their work in action, um, seeing the effects of their work, the positive effects, and in some cases, the less than positive effects, really influenced me and um, really shaped the way that I view farming and our food system worldwide. So that's why I'm very excited to share this information with you. It's one of the reasons why I felt that I absolutely had to write A Farmer's Guide to Climate Disruption, and also why I was compelled to produce the audiobook. Um, so I'm thrilled that you will have this resource at your fingertips in whatever form works best for you. If you're listening to this podcast, awesome. Um, you may want to check out the audiobook as well. The book is also available in a variety of ebook formats and in print. And finally, you can get free downloads at bbooks.org. They are making available the resources that are in the print book. Um, there are some worksheets, uh, some checklists to help you be resilient and thrive in this changing climate. Really, the message that I hope to impart through 
the book and through the podcast is that we can thrive in the changing climate. There are moments where it has already been scary. There are moments where it's going to be even more scary. Um, But there is information available to help you continue producing what you love to produce. Based on the interviews that I've conducted over the years, I I truly believe that even though things are going to get weirder and they're going to get more scary and they're going to get more intense, we still have what it takes to make it through, to support each other. And, you know, I'm not a farmer. Um, I would be a terrible farmer, but I am a pretty decent writer. And so I really hope that this podcast and if you pick up the book, that the book will also really help you to, um, to feel more secure as you enter this, um, this very intense period in our global history and that you will feel um, just absolutely confident in your ability to do your job, do the work that you love and to produce food for a growing population. Thank you for listening. Without further ado, here is episode number one of the Climate Smart Farming Show podcast. Part one, food security at your fingertips. From climate change to poverty, hunger or health, agriculture plays a major role in shaping our future. Herman Lotzkampen, chair of PIK Research Domain climate impacts and vulnerabilities. Chapter 1. Weathering Climate Disruption. Shaping the Future. Warmer winters, superstorms, floods, droughts, new pests, and diseases. If you've experienced any of these issues on your farm in the last 10 years, you may have thought it was an isolated incident a hazard of farming in your particular environment on your specific piece of land. That may be true. However, if you connect with other growers in other areas around the country and the globe, you will probably hear similar stories. This web of isolated incidents has been happening so much more frequently in the last several years and with such greater intensity that scientists feel confident saying the incidents are connected and are the result of a single global event, the overall rise in temperature. We now know this as climate disruption. A word about scientists. Scientists are cautious by nature. If you read scientific literature, you find words like suggests and likely, and probable. Scientists are hesitant to make big pronouncements about anything. Instead, they will research more, explore more, and wait for more evidence to pile up before making a definitive statement. Case in point, it took scientists decades to announce the trend of global warming. Did this happen in the last few years? No, it happened in 1988 when NASA climate scientist Dr. James Hansen testified to the U.S. Congress that the Earth's atmosphere was warming. 
he wasn't postulating. He was reporting proven scientific fact. In the quarter century since that meeting, Hansen's warnings came true, yet people are still debating whether climate disruption is real. It took decades of mounting evidence for researchers to say, yes, this doesn't seem to be happening. This is happening. What does this mean for you? I like to think of climate disruption as an illness. There are symptoms, deluges, droughts, etc. And there is the root cause, increased carbon and greenhouse gases released into the atmosphere. As with any illness, if you focus only on treating the symptom, you may find temporary relief, but you are unlikely to cure the disease. You and I need to address the cause. Based on where you are and where I am, and your profession, farmer, and my profession, writer, we will utilize different treatments. However, we are all faced with the same disease, and we all have the power to treat the cause. What if we don't act? According to a study by the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research, global food demand will double by mid-century. In particular, the demand for animal products will rise rapidly. Contrary to what you may be thinking about supply and demand, this is not good news, as animal products require even more land and crop resources. I have interviewed numerous agricultural researchers on the topic of climate disruption and farming. While some are optimistic about the possibilities for growers and ag researchers to find the right mix of treatments, prophylactics, and creative solutions, they all said the same thing. In 30 years, farmers will need to feed a global population that is expected to grow from 7.9 billion, our current population, to at least 9.5 billion. In a healthy climate, this wouldn't be so daunting. However, we are not living in a healthy climate. We have issues with water pollution, air pollution, and soil degradation. Scientists report expanding ranges of insects, diseases, and weeds. If we make no changes, extreme weather events are predicted to increase dramatically. You know better than I that if you lose your crop to an unexpected hailstorm, it's hard to feed the people you normally feed, never mind to produce food for even more people. How can I help? I'm a writer, not a scientist nor a farmer. While you have some heavy lifting ahead of you, I hope this book will support you with the information you need to thrive during what promises to be some very challenging times. In these pages, I address a variety of climate disruption-related topics and explore how they are related to growing food. Through this book, you'll meet climatologists, soil scientists, experienced farmers, geneticists, and other researchers and practitioners. These are people working to find the most effective ways to get at the root cause of climate disruption without forcing you to sacrifice your way of life completely. As USDA researcher Jerry Hatfield said to me, it's not just an esoteric exercise we're working on in the science community. We really do have the producer in mind to help them grow crops effectively. In this book, 
We'll learn why some agricultural researchers are eating the words of their forebears as they realize the information they delivered to farmers in the last century actually contributed to climate disruption. We'll learn about the importance of biodiversity and what that means in an agricultural setting. We'll learn about changing growing regions, irrigation strategies, soil health, rising sea levels, new cultivars that may thrive in your changing climate, techniques for growing in unpredictable weather. Perhaps most important, we'll learn how shifting your farming practices can actually combat global warming. Weathering climate disruption is something we can only do together. Chapter 2. Creating Food Security in Our Disrupted Climate Agriculture has a tremendous challenge. It's not something we can wait until 2025 to start thinking about. We need to start right now. Jerry Hatfield, United States Department of Agriculture, Agricultural Research Service, 2014 Emerging data reveals plants are more sensitive than previously thought. An average temperature rise of just 6 degrees Fahrenheit can severely affect quantity and quality of yields. As temperatures rise, many researchers in the ag community feel an urgency to bring the tools from their particular area of expertise to a newfangled barn raising. Of course, rather than putting up a building in a day, the challenge is to collaborate for at least the next three decades to put up food for a growing population. If we want to feed the world in the next 35 years, we have to produce as much food in that period of time as we produced in the last 1,500 years, said Hatfield, an agricultural climatologist with USDA's Agricultural Research Service who has spent over 40 years researching the effects of climate on crop growth. He went on to say, agricultural production is going to have to rapidly increase to meet that challenge with more extremes in weather. The concern about climate disruption is expanding rapidly as our weather becomes more extreme, too hot, too cold, too dry, and too wet, even within the same growing season. Each of these extreme weather situations brings additional challenges as well. Aspects of Climate Disruption as Related to Agriculture Climate disruption is a puzzle, not a single problem with a single clear-cut solution. The pieces of the puzzle include global warming. As overall temperatures rise, productivity decreases. Plants have a minimum temperature an optimum temperature at which they grow best, and a maximum temperature above which they die. The negative slope of the curve between optimum and maximum temperature is steep. Plants growing above their optimum are generally stunted and yields are small. Although some crops are starting to grow in previous cooler areas due to warming, Yields decrease when plants must survive in the upper range of their temperature tolerance level. Extreme weather, colder winters and hotter summers with more intense, less frequent precipitation, 
unpredictable yet more frequent extreme weather events, snowstorms in the southeast United States, tornadoes in the northeast, hurricanes, even having the ability to predict extreme temperature and rainfall events would benefit growers by allowing them to adjust planting dates to protect the pollination phase. Pollination phase interruption. The pollination phase is a critical stage in crop growth. As the plant produces pollen or begins to set fruit, exposure to a high temperature event can destroy the pollen and basically render the plant sterile. The end result is zero crop production. Water supply. Plants are more susceptible to high temperature stresses if they are either inadequately watered or overwatered. Hatfield said, one of the things that we have to do is start thinking about adaptation strategies and realizing what differences are within species for some of these responses. For decades, Hatfield's focus has been to find mechanisms growers can employ to help offset various climate stresses. For example, changing varieties based on when they pollinate during the day has a tremendous impact and one doesn't have to change anything other than the variety one plants. The researchers interviewed for this piece agreed, the nature of this problem is not something agriculture can use traditional approaches to solve. Multiple parties from multiple sectors need to come together at the onset, come up with solutions, and anticipate how they'll be applied. Otherwise, we're going to end up with lots of different food shortages in lots of different places, warns Hatfield. Approach. Starting small. The time it takes plants to adapt naturally or through evolution is much longer than the time frame we're looking at, says Kent Bradford, distinguished professor of plant sciences and director of the Seed Biotechnology Center at UC Davis. Bradford's recent research focuses on heat tolerance of lettuce seed germination. In 2013, Bradford identified NCED4, a gene involved in inhibition of germination of lettuce seed. In most lettuce seed, hydration at high temperatures activates NCED4, which then creates an enzyme involved in synthesizing the hormone abscisic acid, which ultimately inhibits germination. However, the particular gene from a wild lettuce line, accession UC96US23, does not respond to high temperature by activating NCED4, and so doesn't make the hormone. Without the presence of abscisic acid, there is nothing to inhibit germination. Therefore, UC96US23 seeds germinate at very high temperature. This ability to germinate at high temperatures is rare among the L. seriola species. Bradford explained, we're interested in understanding how temperature affects the expression of this gene and what mechanisms plants use to sense temperature, because many growing regions are experiencing higher temperatures with climate change. 
One of a few researchers focusing on preparing leafy green vegetables for the extreme weather shifts expected in the next 40 years, Bradford realizes no matter how sturdy it becomes, lettuce will never be a world feeder. Still, thanks to this research, scientists now know there is a specific mechanism that senses temperature and responds by expressing the gene NCED4. Currently, Bradford and his team are trying to determine how that happens. What is it about either this gene or its promoter, he asks. We're interested in seeing whether we can track back up the signaling pathway. What's in the gene and what turned on that signal and that signal and so on? We really don't know a lot about how plants sense temperature. We want to understand how we can prepare our crops. Approach. Multidisciplinary. USDA's Plant Stress and Germplasm Development Research Unit in Lubbock, Texas, conducts research on the response of plants to thermal and water stress and develops germplasm to reduce the impact of these stresses on crop yields and product quality. At the time of this writing, lab director John Burke was using a multidisciplinary approach in a five-year research project to enhance plant resistance to water deficit and thermal stresses in economically important crops. Included in the list are cotton, sorghum, corn, and peanuts. Approach. Water use efficiency. Plant water use efficiency, or WUE, and temperature are intricately linked in many ways. Hotter temperatures in heat waves or future climates create the potential for more water loss from a plant. At the same time, heat waves during already hot periods lead to lower photosynthesis and productivity. Conversely, the agriculture of cooler climates may benefit from hotter temperatures, provided they have enough water. Matthew Gilbert, principal investigator at UC Davis's Whole Plant Physiology Lab, explores how water-conservative plants handle heat. A plant that loses less water has a higher rate of water use efficiency. The plant also has less evaporative cooling occurring in its leaves and thus has hotter leaves. Apropos of climate disruption, Gilbert asks whether, when subjected to temperatures greater than 100 degrees Fahrenheit, a water-conservative plant could be damaged by the lack of evaporative cooling. Since all crop plants have similar physiological mechanisms of water use and photosynthesis, strategies for breeding crops with different water use efficiencies are often broadly applicable to most field grain crops and many vegetables. Gilbert uses similar techniques and ideas to address how to change water use efficiency in a wide variety of crops, including wheat, common beans, lima beans, and, to a lesser extent, soybean, maize, and almonds. He said, I've aligned myself with crop breeders and hope to influence their programs in the coming years. Solving these problems has to be a very collaborative endeavor. As part of the UC Davis community, Gilbert can access diverse seeds, screen them for water use in field experiments, perform scale field trials, 
make suggestions to active crop breeders, and collaborate on determining the genetic basis for the crop traits he finds. His broadest research objective is to decrease crop water use while simultaneously maintaining or improving yields. As a plant loses water through its stomata, it takes up a proportionate quantity of carbon dioxide. Gilbert hopes to capitalize on variation in this trade-off to breed plants that use about 5 to 15% less water yet still have high productivity. Experiments in carbon dioxide enrichment show a plant's optimum temperature for photosynthesis increases with elevated levels of carbon dioxide. Even corn, sorghum, and sugarcane, whose photosynthesis is not stimulated by elevated carbon dioxide, still derive some benefit of elevated carbon dioxide under limited water supply. The elevated carbon dioxide causes the stomata to partially close, which creates higher water use efficiency, enabling these specific plants to grow for a longer time during a drought cycle. In addition, in low-temperature situations that would normally prevent or limit plant growth, enriched carbon dioxide stimulates growth and productivity. Of course, warming a plant beyond its maximum temperature for production is detrimental, no matter what. Bruce Kimball, a soil scientist who retired from USDA's Agricultural Research Service Arid Land Agricultural Research Center in Maricopa, Arizona, conducted face and tea face experiments on soybean at Urbana, Illinois in which he and his colleagues found warming negated the beneficial effects of elevated carbon dioxide. Approach OTC, face, and T-face Generally, plants grow differently in greenhouses than they do outside. With heating, cooling, and carbon dioxide enrichment, greenhouse production can generally be much higher than outside in open fields. Early in his career, Kimball wondered whether the increase in production at higher carbon dioxide observed in greenhouses and growth chambers would be true for open field production as well. Removing the roof from the greenhouse, he created an open top chamber, known as OTC, through which to blow carbon dioxide enriched air. The walls of the chamber confine the elevated levels of carbon dioxide around the plant, yet the environment inside approaches that of an open field. However, walls still shade the plants, so the wind, humidity, and air temperature are not that of an open field. Kimball and his colleagues working with OTC recognized these artifices and wanted to get rid of the walls and have free air carbon dioxide enrichment, also known as FACE. Engineers from Brookhaven National Laboratory created and produced the first FACE apparatus. We did the first FACE experiment with biologically publishable results in Arizona in 1989, Kimball said in an interview in 2014. Stephen Long began working on the effects of rising carbon dioxide and ozone in 1989 and began using the Arizona FACE facilities in 1992. 
He led the development of the Soy Face facility at University of Illinois in the year 2000. Meanwhile, Kimball conducted additional face experiments, two on cotton, four on wheat, and two on sorghum. The last one ended in 1999 when funding dried up. He said, Having more time to think and tinker, I started devising an apparatus that could provide open-field warming so we could study the interactive effects of elevated carbon dioxide and warming on crops. I succeeded using infrared heaters. Now, in addition to face, scientists can do T-face, temperature, free air controlled enhancement. About 20 experiments in different ecosystems have been done or are underway using Kimball's T-Face system. Research is ongoing to develop varieties that are both more responsive to elevated levels of carbon dioxide, as well as more drought and heat tolerant. Plant growth models help scientists develop strategies to maximize the benefits and minimize the detriments of the changing climate. Adaptation and Mitigation Strategies and Modeling Can researchers help growers produce a high-quality crop and help them understand some of the dynamics that really make them a success in doing this? Hatfield said this part of the food security puzzle gets trickier as farmers have to grow new crops or new varieties of old crops for their changing climates. Climate disruption seems to be expanding regions for various crops. The corn-growing region is expanding into the Dakotas because it's getting warmer and a bit wetter. Unfortunately, when growing regions expand, so do areas where insects and diseases proliferate, thus impacting the growth of all crops. The direct impact of climate disruption on crop growth is relatively easy to spot. Fewer see or acknowledge the indirect impact of climate disruption on agriculture. I'm not so worried about climate change and agriculture, Ken Kassman said in 2014. Simply because so many of the studies that look at the impact of climate on crop yields are based on models that do not account for an intelligent farmer modifying planting dates and other factors. Kassman, the Robert B. Dougherty, professor of agronomy at the University of Nebraska, who has conducted research in Asia, Egypt, and South America, expected intelligent farmers to adjust their practices in the face of climate change. Yet he questioned whether we will have enough land. Will we continue building urban expansion onto the best farmland? Will we have enough water or pollute the water so it's not usable for growing food? Kassman and Hatfield shared the concern that simulation models cover areas that are too vast and need to be scaled down. One of the things that hinders us is we don't have downscaled climate information. We really need to bring it down to the country level to be useful to producers, Hatfield explained. That is going to require a lot of very detailed work. To be more realistic, models need to incorporate accurate predictions for rainfall, a challenge in our changing climate. Producers need accurate information to make sound decisions, particularly regarding perennial crops. 
Fruit and nut growers invest three to five years in their trees before they produce a crop. Typically, an orchard requires a 30-year investment. To develop a refined understanding of temperature and phenology, Hatfield and his colleagues set out to improve the simulation models in the Agriculture Model Intercomparison and Improvement Program, AgMIP, by completing a corn comparison with 27 different corn models from around the world, completing a wheat comparison with 24 different wheat models, gathering data from sites in a variety of ecosystems and geographic regions, using the same data sets for each model, and examining how well those models predicted what was observed in each of the test sites. At each site, scientists record the quantity and size of the leaves on each plant, the quantity of biomass, and what happens between the partitioning into reproductive structures and vegetative structures. The computer simulation model allows researchers to draw a graph of that plant as it develops over time. In comparing the models, Hatfield asked how much refinement does each model require to be useful in future climate scenarios? If we're always a little warmer than the optimum temperature, what does that mean for the plant? Are we going to over-exaggerate the impact or underestimate the impact? If these researchers seemed to be focusing on a few major crops, that's because funding sources focus on those crops. The pie for agricultural research needs to increase. We're not doing too much on major cereal crops, but there's not enough to go around for other crops, said Kasman. Gilbert agreed. U.S. government investment in agricultural research has suffered greatly in the recent past. Funding for agricultural research has switched to private companies. Despite admirable success, there is a focus on particular commodities. We need much greater research investment from all sectors in solving these problems, Gilbert said. Assuming increased funding, to prioritize the funding, everything must pass through a lens that says, how is this going to double plus or minus yields on existing farmland while simultaneously massively decreasing the environmental footprint of agriculture? We're in a race against time, Kasman warned in 2014. Several years later, this is still true. An opportunity. It's an exciting time to be in agriculture, according to some. Others may be reminded of that old curse. May you live in interesting times. However one views the projections for humanity's food security, the information is definitely sobering. It's sobering, but we need to face reality, Hatfield emphasized. There's some tremendous opportunities for us. The rewards will be tremendous. Yet the collaborative aspect really needs to be enhanced. We've got to build this thing from a collaborative viewpoint from the very beginning instead of in our little silos. Whether it requires snipping in other genes to change a plant's temperature response or exploring paths in traditional breeding that change another aspect of a plant characteristic, thus allowing it to better cope with the extreme weather events, Researchers at the leading edge of creating food security in our changing climate 
have been and continue to be open to all avenues. Hatfield reported, a lot of us are trying to figure out how this all fits together and what it means for the stability of the food supply on a worldwide basis. It's a true multi-sector, multinational collaborative effort that includes agricultural professionals across the globe, including the United States, Europe, South America, Australia, China, Japan, many African countries, India, and Pakistan. Also included are universities, cooperative extension, regional climate centers, and commodity groups and producer organizations. Currently, the commodity groups include soy, corn, beans, rice, and cotton. Hatfield hoped vegetable organizations would join soon. He said, We need to build bridges to foster communication and be able to explain what's happening realistically in terms of the crop responses. While he was working with a geneticist to examine data for indications of different temperature responses, Hatfield knew the agricultural community couldn't expect geneticists to fix the problem. We need a partnership, he said. Consider how much food must be produced over the next four decades. What unforeseen environmental challenges will agriculture face in that time? Food security is tied to political stability, to population growth rates, and to economic growth rates. The task is to find a way to produce enough food to meet the requirements of a population that will be much larger, wealthier, and possibly stable for the first time in recorded history, if female fertility falls to replacement levels. Kassman said, for 9.5 billion people, we have a chance. Those 9.5 billion people have a right to flourish the way humans should. But at 10 billion people, with greenhouse gases and all that, really, how? Growers have a unique opportunity to work toward a solution to what Kassman described as the single greatest challenge facing humanity in the next four decades. Will you be one of them? Thanks for listening to episode one of the Climate Smart Farming Show podcast. I hope you liked what you heard. Please tune in next time to learn about the emerging language of climate disruption and how you can use that in your communications with colleagues and with customers. Thanks for listening to the Climate Smart Farming Show podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may also like my book, a Farmer's Guide to Climate Disruption, now available in ebook, print, and audiobook. To support this podcast and my other creative endeavors for as little as $1 a month, please visit patreon.com forward slash Rebecca L. Fraser. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.